Hello and welcome. This is an audio recording of an IFG live event. Hello and welcome to this Institute for Government event on what works in government. My name is Alex Thomas and I'm a programme director here at the IFG. Uh, And you might be forgiven at the moment for answering the what works question uh, with another question, does anything? But... It does, of course, that was my dad joke, I got teased for that earlier. It it does, of course, government is a mix of success, failure, and mostly things that fall in between. The mission of the uh, independent What Works centres, which are now 10 years old, is to look particularly at how evidence and evaluation should be used to do government better. The What Works network covers youth and ageing, health and social care, policing and local economic growth, well-being and finance. And it's been David Halpern's job as the What Works national advisor for the last decade to help build, support and promote the network. So we're really pleased that he's here today as he steps down as the national advisor to share some valedictory thoughts about the network, uh, about what has worked over those 10 years and to pass the baton on to others which is why I'm also delighted to welcome Tamara Finkelstein, who is the Permanent Secretary at the Department for the Environment, Food and Rural Affairs, has had senior jobs in the Treasury, Department of Health, what's now the Leveling Up Department and elsewhere. And particularly importantly for our purposes today, Tamara is the head of the policy profession and uh, so is one of a number of people who will be helping pick up the baton from uh, from David. So the way it's going to work uh, this afternoon is David will give us a presentation Then I'll turn to Tamara for her reaction and some responses before opening things up to uh, questions from our audience here in person uh, and online via Slido. So get the questions coming in now. We'll also be tweeting from our IFG events uh, uh, Twitter handle and use hashtag IFG what works if you want to join in the conversation uh, on Twitter. Um, Before we start, I'd normally say there are no fire alarms planned, and there are no fire alarms planned. We have been told there's some work happening on the fire alarms today, so don't be alarmed if they do go off. If it's for longer than a few seconds, then we'll go outside and gather, but if it stops very quickly, then it will just be uh, builders uh, uh, working on the alarms. And there's also scaffolding going up around the building today, so if there are noises off, I apologise for that. There's also apparently something happening on the other side of Westminster, which, um, uh, which is rudely gatecrashing this event. If you all know before I do, but if, uh, you know, if my phone started going mad with uh, news of who the new Conservative Party leader is, then you know, I'll make a, an airline-style announcement and, uh, uh, and, and, and let you know. But anyway, I'm confident all will be well. Over to you, David, to kick us off. Thanks. I'm looking forward to that fasten-your-seatbelt <laughs> moment. Um, thanks. Lovely to be here um, and very much... I feel like... IFG's been a great partner, of course, along the way in this over a long period of time. Um, I should also, if Kavanaugh is up there, because the role has been a slightly old one, so I do a day a week as this. I don't really speak on behalf of the Cabinet Office, but Cabinet Office has been a good home, and of course, well, we try to push this forward. So if I make some remarks, they aren't necessarily government policy along the way. Maybe I should clarify that detail. Um, and I'm going to call, call this kind of subtitle, or the unfinished enlightenment. It's that idea that actually that's basically what we're trying to do. We're trying to bring light to understand what the hell actually works or doesn't. Seems a pretty good idea. Um, We're going to start, though, from a flashback from just over 10 years ago from this room, which was the first public comments by the new Cabinet Secretary. Many of you will remember. Jeremy Hayward. I think we've constantly got to ask ourselves the question, are we being innovative? Are we genuinely world-class? Are we resting on our laurels? How do we improve the policy-making process itself? 
And so I will personally be taking a great interest in that. Uh, the agenda on welfare and well-being and happiness, much derided, but really, really important, I think, in the next 10 to 20 years. Uh, and uh, I think the whole question of nudge, as I say, and transparency, very, very important. I've also put on the agenda uh, one of David Halpin's uh, ideas, I think, about a nice for policymaking. Simple idea, which is, make, why, why aren't we much clearer which of these policy interventions to get uh, people uh, rehabilitated so they don't recommit crimes, uh, early interventions to stop three-year-old kids uh, arriving at school, unready for school. It's a whole array of experiments in policy that have been tried in America, here, elsewhere. We don't have a simple way of saying the evidence suggests these ones really do work and offer value for money. These ones don't. So we keep reinventing the world. <coughs> Local authorities are wasting money. Other commissioners are wasting money trying interventions which don't work. So let's try and use the discipline of a sort of fiscal tightness to really squeeze out bad policy making and be much clearer about where the evidence is pointing to us. So there you go. A few cheers in the eyes of that one. Um, but of course, Jeremy, incredibly articulate, essentially set out what the idea was with respect to what works, driving things, making more empirical. And actually, a lot of linked conversations about the policy profession. How could we actually make the policy profession a true profession with the right skills and capabilities? Um, and tomorrow I might want to come back to that later on. So what I'm going to try and fairly briskly do is just give a little bit of history, though some of you in the room I know know it well, but a bit of perspective on it. I'm going to spend most of my time then talking about what are the things we actually need to do, I think, going forward, partly as the sort of baton is passed in some kinds of ways. Um, so just remind ourselves some basic numbers, because Jeremy's remarks apply absolutely today, given what we're about to have to likely to do with respect to public spending and so on. Around about a trillion pound of public spending, um, nearly a, um, half a million civil servants, nearly six million public servants, spending about 10 billion hours a year of doing stuff. You know, what do they do? Are they using that time and money well and wisely, right? That question remains as important as ever. And if we go into another spending review, actually, how are we going to cut? Ideally, we would be figuring out which things of that trillion are worth keeping and which are the things actually we should trim back on or adapt or whatever. Um, But as we all know, it's actually incredibly hard. And in some depressing sense, it's almost as hard today as it would have been a decade ago to answer some of that question. But we have made some progress. Um, we certainly seem to talk about evidence a bit more and then in some of the, you know, on the face of it with respect to what's going on in the media about lots of issues. A lot of stuff actually come from government sites talking about um, calls for evidence on various kinds of issues, which is kind of encouraging. Should we break up the union? Can we figure out evidence on that? Is it a good idea or not? Um, and so on. There are lots of these issues. Drugs policy never goes away. Um, and so on and so on and so on. Um, so... Yeah, couldn't resist putting that one on. Um, was it a good idea or not? Could we have known in advance? So it's there. It's a long-standing weakness, particularly in respect to this is IFG work from again, in fact, more than a decade ago, asking sort of senior policymakers, ministers, and um, perm sex and others about strengths and weaknesses, um, civil servants and ministers. What you can agree on is the absolute worst was lack of evaluation. Right, just nowhere near good enough. And if we went back in time, so you know, classic analysis like um, Hogwood and Gunn from the 80s, where they talked about how policy is really made, they have a similar sort of story about someone comes on the news and they say, we did this thing, et cetera, et cetera, and we thought about the options. And if you unpacked it, it was almost never true that actually there had been some really significant evidence-based weighting of the uh, options. What about the public? Here's just a 
new tool we now all have to play with, but Google, you know, search activity. Um, this is evidence-based policy. I mean, hardly even doesn't register, but even evidence since 2004. It's not obvious that the search activity has gone up in general. A really interesting detail. Do you know if I can get this to work as a laser? Yeah. You notice how it bites something down. It's kind of fascinating. Do you know what this is? This is the same. This is August. <laughs> basically, no one is interested in evidence. <laughs> it's interesting, Tracy. Um, in uh, basically uh, late summer. They get more interested in it in, um, uh, yeah, it seems like January That's through to spring. <laughs> yeah, whatever it's about. Is it just school kids? We don't know. Anyway, um, not doing much better on this evaluation, by the way, for the ETF. Uh, actually, if anything, it looks like it's less search activity. On the other hand, let's have a look at fake. Um, and we're definitely up the green line. Um, so that's not entirely encouraging, is it, in terms of that cut on public interest? I sometimes you won't go through it in detail, but how do we respond to this? Is we basically, in the end, have to roll up our sleeves and do the hard work to figure out, does something work or does it not? So I sometimes, in presentations, use a variation of this, spot the old one out, like, um, have I got news for you? Many of you have seen this. That's elixir of vitriol. oil. Um, someone having head injuries. Lithium, giving people lithium. Uh, and a bunch of kids having... Uh, ex-offenders shouting at them. Um, many will recognise what they are. Three of those are very, very famous interventions. Um, subsequently, when they were evaluated, shown to be not only not effective, but in fact, generally counterproductive. Scurvy, of course, the first one, um, from Lynn's very famous first randomised control trial, scared straight, head injuries, two randomised control trials, not pretty recently showing that the standard treatment of steroids, etc., actually make people more likely to die. The odd one out then, of course, being lithium, which is, it seemed completely implausible that giving people a simple mineral like lithium would improve mental health, and particularly bipolar. And of course, it did, that randomized control trial showed that it did, in fact, help. Um, so what are we trying to do? We're trying to do more of that stuff, fundamentally, in the footsteps of Archie Cochrane. And we should remind ourselves that in medicine, it was pretty controversial, certainly running into the 1970s, the idea that you would run randomized control trials and see if something works or not. But it's still true, this is from, you know, Jonathan Shepard, this graph from a few years ago now, but, you know, number of kind of randomized control trials in health and so on compared with everything else, everything else. It's pretty, are we, are we saying that, you know, education, crime, etc., it's not possible to build evidence in the same way when it's literally life and death in relation to a treatment or trial with respect to uh, medical matters. Um, and, of course, famously in his book, uh, Effectiveness and Efficiency, where he had told the medical profession to get going on this, he also remarked at the end of the epilogue, I know I've been tough on medics, but look at everyone else, how many judges and others use this kind of evidence, right? Um, a little tiny side, I'm not going to dwell on it, but of course BIT back in 2010, that's why Jeremy was cross-referencing it, um, was, you know, along the side, we, it wasn't something that Cameron asked for, but when we were trying to use nudge-type techniques, we knew we were going to have a hard time persuading anyone, um, so we thought we'd better test them. So this was... One of the very famous early ones, you might remember, on tax trials. And this guy here was um, a civil servant, middle level in HMRC, um, Nick Downs, who basically said, yeah, you can, you can come and we'll work with you in relation to, I, I have to deal with tax, I've got 600 million. I send out letters. Do you think you could try some better versions? Which, of course, we, we did. Um, one of the famous which, nine out of ten people pay their tax on time. Would it make a difference? And the answer was, yeah, it gave you about five percentage points if you use something like... Most people pay their tax on time. You're one of the few yet to do so. Or 15% increase in the payment rate by adding a line on a letter. 
What's interesting is, of course, Steve Hilton and others weren't interested in the experimental bit of it, but we always thought actually one of the most radical, important bits of it was the experimental, and Jeremy got that too. So the idea was, even if you didn't care about behavior science, why don't we just get more literally empirical, experimental to find out what works? So I think a key bit, I mean, Jeremy was amazing in a million different ways, but one thing he was maybe less interested in was creating institutions, right, beyond individuals. And I think that is a very powerful way to build an ecosystem. And that's been a big part of the story of the last 10 years. So the what works approach was, yeah, can we get some more evidence, generate it? Can we translate it, put it into forms that would actually be used by particularly public sector professionals? And can we do something about the fact that they would be able to tell the difference between good and bad evidence? This one actually tends to get most neglected, but really important. And it was sat against the background of graphs like this. This is a famous one from the period Toby Ord around development, where you try and work out the efficacy in dallies or years of life for different treatments. So you get a long tail of things that look like they do almost nothing, and then you get a small number at the top, like mosquito nets and so on, which look like they're very big impact sizes. If we can do that for development, why couldn't we do it for domestic policy? Um, a timeline? So, yeah, it didn't all start 10 years ago. Of course, we had the example, as Jeremy referenced, to NICE. And it's worth remembering that a lot of people thought NICE wasn't going to work. It thought it was going to crack almost immediately under threat from pharmaceuticals. It would say, what do you mean you're not going to you know, prescribe that drug? Um, so it was a kind of shock success, and it's worth remembering that. There was discussion even way back in the Blair years of creating a social policy NICE, but of course it never arrived. We had BIT. Then, of course, you get on the bottom line, you're going to see some of these. We've got Jeremy's speech we just saw. And then we start to create a whole series of more what work centers, and the network gets created. By 2014, we've got quite a few coming along. We have the trial advisory panel. That's a Ghostbusters of evaluation. Who are you going to call? Could we set up a group of people departments could call? And it's still alive today and actually expanded. Um, we have the ARIs, which were linked to it. Could we get the departments to say what they didn't know the answer to? Which was quite a big battle with Francis supported it and Jeremy. And it was incredibly difficult to get departments to write down and publish what they didn't know the answer to. Because, of course, they're supposed to know the answer to everything. So it's a bit, you know really important and something that Patrick picked up on when he came in. The network, whose more work centres come along, um, the evidence quarter, a quick shout out to that, the Ditchley lecture, which we'll touch back on later, and then the evaluation task force, which we'll also touch on later, and the accelerator fund. So they form a kind of thread. Are they enough? Probably not. But you have at least a set of institutions, including inside government and outside, that are now trying to work on this day in, day out. Um, and they do stuff like this. This is the EF one. I'll use EF a few times. You know, a, a, a toolkit. Just literally, if you're a head teacher, you've got your pupil premium. What do you want to spend money on? And it will give you some sense of simple comparisons. What's the effect size in terms of months? How much, is it, how much does it cost? And how confident are you about that result? And the EF has just carried on churning through that because the EF is a massive producer now. Um, very large proportion of the world's educational research has now been produced by the EEF in the last decade in the UK. We tried to do some on policy, and that's continued with the ETF. Literally, how do you make policy? Green book changes, case studies, not least a one-off trial, but also iterating. But still, what we will know, a couple of years ago, this joint bit of work with Cabinet Office, BIT, Treasury, why don't we go back, and we did it on a 400 billion of expenditure, new expenditure to say what proportion of it is evaluated to tell us whether it works or not. And this stat, which Michael Goh put into the public domain rather powerfully and shockingly, say actually only 8%. And that's not a randomized controlled trial. That is even the most basic before-after sort of evaluation. And it's not legacy spend, that's new spend. 
So I think it was very powerful. NEO and, of course, others also picked up on that, and it helped to drive the creation of the ETF, which is a bit of it here, and some of whom are in the room. You can wave your hands. Um, really important to kind of institutionalize and create a piece of government, very importantly, with Treasury backing, saying this is something that we care about. We're going to start evaluating policy, and that should be normal. I won't go through the limit, but ETF's doing lots and lots of cool stuff. You can look it up, list of some of the things it's doing and tracking over time. I really want to just spend most of the rest of my time, though, talking about, so ETF and that history is great. What should we be doing going forward? And I'm going to use it around these kind of 10 challenges. So I'll go through them at some pace, but at least it's my opportunity publicly to say what I think some pretty good things to go for. So minor gaps, what are the things we don't know? We did the ARIs, they need to be redone. There's a lot of things that are not in the ARIs, which if we were really honest and we said, we actually don't know the answer to these things. This screenshot is something which was done a few years ago, which was really neat, actually, I thought, which is jointly with Treasury and departments, which is to create so-called value maps, where you work out the proportion, what do you spend your money on, right? This was then, <laughs> department doesn't exist anymore, DCLG, now DLUC, and this is for housing. How much do you spend your money on and then you try and shade it to work out, you know, basically, is there room for efficiency improvements? Like, how well does it work? And then the hatching is supposed to indicate, are you sure? How good is your evidence, right? That's the bit was not even asked. So you might take a punt at, well, we think this is quite a lot of money spent on it. We're not sure it's very efficacious. But actually, we don't really know. And that's what we've got to really be prepared to say, what do we not know the answers to? And I think that's been a recurrent issue. When on COVID, slightly edgy, um, one of the things that was discussed early on in COVID, which Matt Hancock was up for doing, which is we should right at the beginning, we should have a, basically a site which just says all the things we don't know the answer to. Just put it in the public domain. And then people kind of come in and say, actually, there's a good paper on this, or we don't know the answer, or we need some research on it. It was extremely difficult to get that. And the version of what did appear was essentially a summary of existing research. That's not the same thing, right? To say, this is what we know already, as opposed to, what do we not know? It's really hard, actually, to admit what you don't know, but desperately important. So, build the skills. You and I have talked about this lots of times. I think very often, one of the recurrences you get again and again is, oh, yeah, but ministers don't really want this or this or the other. Yeah, sometimes. Often they are up for doing it, actually. And my own view is, a lot of the barrier has been, we don't have the skills inside the civil service to do this, including the policy profession, quite often. So what does that boil down to? Um, there are about a half a dozen on the evaluation side kind of core methods it would use. The randomized control trial is, of course, the most famous, but you get things like the step wedge design, phase rollout, or discontinuity designs. If you don't know what they are, you probably most in the room do. You should do in Whitehall. And I reckon it basically take about, well, having done it with Treasury and elsewhere, it takes about an hour to take a bunch of smart civil servants and explain to them the six principal methods you should know about and build into policy. It is unbelievable. We just, I mean, you know my view, which is um, if you want to get into the SES, we should literally test as to whether you know core methods. And if you don't, we shouldn't give you the job. And that would be it. It doesn't have to be you've done them all. You have to run them, but you should understand them well enough. And of course, you might have gone to LSE and learned about them, but otherwise you pick it up along the way. And we should take a pretty hard line on that. Um, expand the pipeline. You might call this a Bingham approach now, which is that, you know, what you really want to do is try out a load of things and go through some version of Design Diamond. It's a BIT version. You know, explore different kinds of options, um, try out quite a few. Don't put all your eggs in one basket and then try and test some alternatives. So again, in COVID, taking what Kate did on, you know, you don't go for one vaccine, you invest in lots of them. 
because you know some of them won't work. But in contrast, for example, what happened on the app, for those who remember the NHS app, essentially the system punted on one solution, and it was mad. It was so key and critical. We could have and should have gone for, let's try out three or four different versions of the app in parallel. Some of them won't work, some of them will, right? And just build that in a way of working. Um, and so that drives you to innovation funds that create permission, evaluation by default, and of course, protocol publication. Like, have you, you know, said you're going to test it? Build the data architecture, very briefly, but unbelievably important. I mean, one of the major battles has been, can you assemble the data, figure out, does this work or does it not? One of the most brilliant examples in the civil service in recent years was by Stephen Aldridge and others on troubled families, a genius piece of work to try and work out, you know, does it work or not? But it took him three years to assemble the data, and still he couldn't get a lot of it. We've got to do better than that. And Ian Diamond, we need him to do that. Mind the variance. It's a massive benefit of the fact that in a weird kind of way, we haven't been evidence space for a long time. So there's lots of variance in almost every single public service, which is unexplained. Some places are doing amazing good things, you know, whatever. Well, these are, you know, this is productivity by cities. You know, you want to know what the hell is it about Reading that makes it more productive than other places? And can you bottle it and reproduce it? So mind the variance, including using machine learning, etc. Premise, of course, on the right data. Replicate. So it's hard enough, and of course there are Whitehall departments that have barely even done a single randomized control trial. And then you've got to say to them, by the way, you then got to do it again and again and again. That's the whole point. You want to keep testing variations, not least because you're going to get errors. This is EEF again, able now to do what you've been able to do in medicine for years, which is on a particular topic. You can say, well, actually, it's not just a single thing on arts participation or whatever. You can now see a load of studies, and you start to see a distribution. You become much more confident about, does this work as an approach? That's what we should be expecting, not just a one-off. Increase the hit rate. This is quite technical, but it's still the case that the hit rate, of course, you know, in many areas, like commercial, if you're doing AV formatting, you'd be lucky if one in 50 things you try works better than business as usual. Some good what work centers, like education and elsewhere, who are doing trials, you might get one in five where you filtered it through, good ideas and so on, you take them to trials, now actually approaching two million kids. Um, in BIT, we were able to hit a slightly higher rate, and I think there are clues about what you can do to increase the hit rate. And in essence, a simple example would be, if you take that tax trial and it works pretty well, you might say, okay, what other things that look like it? Where you're writing someone a letter in a similar kind of way, could you test something in a similar way, right? And you're much more likely to get a high hit rate. So we could just drive up our hit rate in that way. Transferable solutions. Translate and adopt. I mentioned that's one of the areas I think has been most difficult. This is a great example of it. Actually, Society for Evidence-Based Policing. In fact, they just had their event this year, um, just this from last year's. Alex and Larry Sherman now just brought into the Met. But that is a fantastic example. Like Nick Downs, people who are actually in services who are experimenting and trying to find new things. So Jeremy's example, you might remember if you were paying very close attention, he gave an example of actually young people offending. It's a fantastic result, just produced, not formally published yet, post-COVID, of what happens if you send police officers and try a number of forces, you identify your highest, most violent, you know, you've been stabbed or have stabbed someone in the you know, previous period, you send officers to the home and you say, here's some alternatives, you might want to do this, and we kind of got our eyes on you, you talk to the family, etc. What's the effect size? About a one-third reduction in violence, and it's a 45% reduction in violence of the under-18s. It's a stomping effect size, but it rests on officers being prepared to try a different variation and practice on the ground and then test if it works. 
And of course, creating then evidence-based professions. Again, Jonathan Shepard did this a few years ago, was reminded of it, brought together lots of evidence-based professions. Because if you look at they're nearly all medics, actually. There's like 20 different ones that are all different, like anaesthetists and surgeons and so on. But at least there's a few others. There's Dane Peacock at the front, for example, for education and so on. Bring the public with us. This does matter, right? Um, ben, make, ben Goldacre made the argument years ago, which I thought was right. Would the public in their engagements, when they go to a teacher or a doctor, will they say, why are you recommending that? Right? Would they push? Or, you know, on the Today programme, how often will the presenter say, so what exactly is your evidence behind that claim? You know? So ideally, we want to have a world where this is public understanding of what constitutes the difference between good and bad evidence. And of course, beautifully, there is an experimental study to suggest that this is possible. It's from Uganda, which I just mentioned, which is a wonderful study showing can you teach kids, let alone civil servants, can you teach them to be better bullshit detectors, basically, in everyday speak? So when someone makes a claim, you recognize they've made a claim, you ask what lies behind that claim and was it a good method or not? And it turns out you can teach kids, and in fact, it affects the teachers and the parents too. They all get better at being bullshit detectors. It's a really great positive result, something we should try and do more generally. Um, the last thing here, right, is go global. So we have been quite domestically focused. The What Works Centres, they're a fantastic set of institutions. Um, of course, they represent the, you know, the, the story of, of Whitehall. Um, but, you know, again, if you stick with education, it's hard to think that, you know, if you're sat in Berlin or Paris or, in fact, most places in the world, you're similarly wrestling with what's the best way of teaching kids trigonometry who find it pretty dull, you know? There will be differences. In some parts of the world, you'll be asking, how do I get the teachers to even turn up, you know? Um, but basically, it, it is mad that we haven't emerged into a situation that these have turned into global projects. So this Canadian led actually Evidence Commission relatively recently was an example of trying to say that's what the pathway might look like. Um, you know, why wouldn't it be a G20? If we've got FCDO cut budgets, the most useful thing we could do, our gift to the world, would be we'll share knowledge. We'll show you, we'll build an evidence base how you can spend the money which you're receiving. And you can decide. So in conclusion, where are we at? Unfinished enlightenment. It definitely feels unfinished, although a lot of progress, I think. Um, some of the things Jeremy, of course, was talking about are absolutely with us today as ever. Spending cuts, how are we going to do them? Can we do it intelligently? Can we, are we going to say to DEFRA, well, we're going to give you this extra money, but if you've got no evidence for this program, we're giving it to you conditional on the fact you're going to evaluate it hard. And if in 18 months' time there's no evidence for the program, we're going to cut your budget by dot, 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 choose a number, potentially quite large. You know, if we did that to scale, would that change behavior in Whitehall? Probably. Is it a better way of doing spending review than what we do now, which is, you know, you have a discussion last minute. What was the evidence? Should we cut this or should we not? The truth is in most areas, you have to shrug your shoulders. So we don't know. And we've been in this cycle for a very long time. And of course, the answer is what we should do is have a time machine, go back five years, get evaluations in place on all these major programs so that at that spending review, we'll have good evidence of saying what we should cut or not. Well, as we know, second best to having done it five years ago is let's do it now so that in future spending reviews, we will be in that position. Um, so we need both marginal and radical innovations um, where we test variations, really powerful on, you know, what officers do on the ground. Um, and Jeremy talked about social policy, nice, but there's definitely also a case for some kind of aria, as in you know, the new research facility, which would also just go a bit crazy, let his hair down and do some nut stuff and see if it works, leaving some plausible deniability for the rest of Whitehall. Um, it's going to cost something. 
What's the right level? We should at least reflect on that. This is, you can't see this very well, but these are R&D levels as a percentage for a number of organizations. It's famously Amazon, who basically say, well, everything we do is R&D. But you don't have to go for that. I mean, look at VW, 15% odd, 15, 16% of their spend is R&D. You know? And so basically, VW spend more on R&D than the entire UK government, including UKRI and everything, the whole shebang, to make a slightly better car. There are lots of departments that don't even spend 1%. In fact, they're nowhere near 1% in terms of their R&D expenditure. So you're basically locked into legacy practices if we're not trying anything new. So we can argue about what the level is, but if we think for the whole economy, it's circa 2.4% or better OECD average, God, imagine if public service spent 2.4% or anything close to it on R&D innovation experimentation. Like, well, that, but that is some version of it has to be the route to better productivity and, and outcomes. So I'm very much passing the baton. I hope I'm not going to disappear. I'm not retiring. I'm still running the Pavel and Sykes team. If tomorrow wants to talk, I'm happy to pick up the phone. Walk across the road. Um, it's really important that this is owned. So ministers don't, they're not, the plan is not to have another national advisor. We do have the ETF, so we've got an institution, but we've got lots of people. Ian is going to, Ian Diamond will be chairing the council, What Works Council of Institutions. Cat Little, because second perm sec, has been a great champion in relation to the Treasury actually saying, are you evaluating, are you not? Really important. Patrick, and because his successors, incredibly important. What is important, not just science as in a white coat, but also the scientific method into what we do routinely. Tamara, absolutely key, the policy profession. I think in many ways more important than the analytical profession. And folks like Alex Chisholm with respect to skills and the old COO. So... Kind of at the conclusion, really. But to me, I've always thought humility is the cornerstone. That is the most difficult thing. It goes to being able to say, we don't know what works, but we're going to try and figure it out. Being open to the idea, or to be slightly edgy, the right kind of clever. For those who know Tetlock's work, you need to be a fox, not a hedgehog. He uses this distinction, right? Hedgehogs, they know only one thing. They make great commentators. Really simple theory. Do this thing, it'll work. That's what you want to hear about. They're very entertaining. They make good speeches. It's just that if the world is quite complicated... That's not really what you need. You need a so-called fox that knows many things. And, of course, Tetlock shows that foxes are much less good as pundits. They're not as fun to listen to, but they're much more likely to make a correct prediction. And then, finally, I should just say thanks. There's so many people. Of course, we have many ministers who supported this along the way. Some of you have been in this room across parties. Um, lots of the What Works team through the years. You know who you are. Some, Danny, Mason, Laura, now back at um, Home Office. Jen Gold, of course, ESRC. Lots of folks doing that. Many of the What Works, heads of What Works. Andrew Dillon was incredibly generous. You know, he'd been around for a long time running nice. And the fact that he was, like, prepared to say, oh, I'll come along and talk to you new kids. Kevin, Becky, lots more. Henry for What Works Council, some of whom are there. This is the place, uh, et cetera. Our BIT team. And, of course, actually Jeremy. I think, I hope he would be quite pleased about the progress we made. But he would probably say it's not good enough yet. Right. I'll stop there. Thank you. Brilliant. Okay. Thank you, David. Tour de force. Thank you very much. Are you going to give us the announcement? Uh, Look at the timing. Well, no. Penny Morden has pulled out. So we know who our. I wonder who will win. Um, uh, uh, Fantastic. Thank you. Uh, Thank you very much, uh, David. And I particularly like the message, as well as the thanks, obviously, but of sort of humility and. uh, humility in the face of complexity uh, there as well. But now, tomorrow, over to you. To, uh, Thank you. Um, and just fantastic to hear all that. Great to start with uh, Jeremy and uh, his sort of 
leadership in in this space i'm sure he'd say it's good but not good enough yeah. um, i like that 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 we should take um as a given but david you're also a legend uh and you've had a huge impact uh already on policy making government bringing the behavioral insights um uh, into our kind of vocabulary and our understanding and championing the use of evidence and evaluation, and I'm hoping this is a punctuation point um, as you stand down to what works advisor, and, and I think your, your personal influence in these spaces will uh, will remain, at least I hope so. Um, I mean, I sort of reflect and, and, and hearing what you said about some of the progress that has been made, both on behavioural insights actually and on and and on on what works. And most departments have a behavioural insight capability. Um, we've got 40 um, departments and public bodies involved in the, uh, the cross-government behavioural insights network. When policy professionals were asked what's, what, what are the things they use, the top thing was the what works materials. And I think that's kind of testament um, to its quality, but also its accessibility. And you showed the, uh, the toolkit uh, up there that actually means that people who are time poor can uh, can access quality stuff really quickly um you know, in the last spending review the evaluation task force had a real impact in uh you know everyone got their uh, their settlement letters and it required um you know you to uh, have an evaluation strategy in place and put stuff in place uh, admittedly for some of the kind of uh new programs and you drew attention to the areas of research interest which i think goes to the humility point as well and um in support of how do we get that evidence that we need for the future i think those um publishing our areas of research interest which most departments now do uh is incredibly helpful but as was clear from what you were saying it's taken us too long to get to this point um and uh and it's not far enough and i also just obviously struck by the the eight percent point uh, of going through the major programs, which actually, are, of all things that you do, with lots of things outside that, you'd think would have that in place, and that only eight percent um, had uh, proper evaluation plans in place. Now, one of the the, the the jobs in my career that has really shaped me was working on on Shorestop, which was the government's um, early years program that started in 1998, um, a long time ago, and. Um, that was developed in response to evidence uh, of the importance of early years, of the kind of minus nine months to three years that people didn't, uh, had not, um, had not really thought you, know, you shouldn't intervene in anything until people appeared at school. The money was distributed not by competition, but by evidence of where actually is the deprivation. And if you couldn't come up with a plan, you didn't lose the money. You got help with coming up with a plan. Um, local communities were, were encouraged to try different approaches on solving problems. There was investment in measuring the impact and then an attempt that kind of had you easily give people um, then the information about the things that worked. And most importantly, it was one of the biggest evaluation programmes government had ever uh, done, comparing short start children to a control group. And it continues to provide evidence. And I know, having heard, listened to Joe Caseborn, who um, leads the... Uh, uh, the Early Intervention Foundation, and that's coming together with the, the What Works on Children's Social Care, but continuing to use that evidence. So I experienced that, and at that point, it felt like, well, this is it. This is the standard for how you make really good policy. And it did massively influence me, but despite that, I've fallen short of it <laughs> um, uh, in, my, uh, in my career going 
forward. And so over, I mean, over this last decade, you've been central to driving the development of the tools that we can, um, that we can use. Uh, and, um, but as I take on, have taken on the, the leadership of the policy profession, um, I'm only too aware of us doing the, using this inconsistently. And that's what the evidence is saying, that we've got the tools, the institutions that you talk about that are so important, but we haven't really mainstreamed truly evidence-based uh, policymaking, evaluated, evaluating what we do. And you, know, you describe 10 things, and they are the things that we should take away. But when I think, you know, how do we make the change and make it faster, I can't help thinking it's a people thing. Um, it's about us. And we've got to have more policy professionals with the right skills. And we've got to have more professionals outside policy involved in the policymaking process. And, um, you know, I think we should tackle all, your, all, all the things that you say are blockers, but I'm particularly focused on that. So really committed in the policy profession to raising our capability. We've revamped the standards um, uh, that we're using for the policy professional and the expectations of what knowledge people should have, including um, uh, in, in the areas that you discussed. And now, and we're developing a curriculum um, that are linked to the standards and looking at how do we assure that knowledge and how do we build in an expectation about continuous professional development. Um, and it's not going to be fast, but um, we have to, uh, we, are, we are very committed to that task. It's going to be an absolute priority. And what about that? How do you build in the other professions into how you solve a policy problem? It needs to be that a policy professional takes a policy problem and thinks, who are the sets of professionals and, um, and evidence I need to, to solve that problem? We do not teach how you bring together a multidisciplinary team and make most use of it. So we have to do that. Um, and we are addressing, uh, addressing that, that problem and also ensuring that the, 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 the learning that we provide for policy professionals, we are also providing for other professionals who want to be involved in policy making. So that stuff is, is, is at the core of some of the things we're going to uh, prioritise because um, we've got to stitch this approach in um, you know, to using evidence into what we do uh, because the stuff is there, the institutions are there, and we're not using it properly. So um, uh, that is the kind of uh, that's the priority, which I hope will address some of the blockers that you identify. And I hope you're going to um, uh, remain part of this. As you say, resources are tight. We've got huge policy uh, challenges, and uh, it's crucial that we bring the best evidence to bear to, to solve them to get the right outcomes for the citizens of this country. Yeah, brilliant. Thank, Thank you, you uh, tomorrow. Uh, we'll do it. Uh, thank you very much. And um, you know, a really interesting sort of exchange there already and loads of questions coming in. Do keep them coming in. And if you can, I should have said this at the start, say who you are and where you're uh, asking the question um, from. But we've got plenty to uh, keep us going. I was going to ask the first one and work in a couple uh, from Slido and then I'll come to the room. But to, to both of you, really, I mean, we talk a lot in, in the IFG about accountability and accountability can mean lots of different things. But in this context, uh, there's something about the accountability for... Uh, policymakers for um, other civil servants for building in evidence and evaluation. And there's a role for exhortation and there's a role for, um, uh, for, for um, promoting this. But do you think there are changes we need to make to our sort of accountability structures, to the pressure that, that policymakers and others feel from Parliament, from the public, um, uh, to 
uh, to actually make progress on that, you know, 8% or whatever. And working in a couple of these questions, there's one that talks about um, the, uh, given the increasingly limited resources in the civil service, how should we prioritise evaluation activity? Um, what advice would you give to departments with limited uh, capacity? And the other is about ministers, a very popular one, uh, all well and good getting civil servants upskilled in evidence-based policymaking, but given ministers are the gatekeepers to approving much of this research, how do we get them more comfortable with public evaluations of their policies? So a few things in there, but how do we make both ministers and uh, you know, time and resource poor civil servants um, uh, accountable for for improving things. David? First. Sure, shall I start on that? Well, almost in reverse order. So I think, well, ministers don't matter. One of the reasons some of you know I was involved in the original creation of this place, um, and it's wonderful to see you guys doing so well, was, um, but was partly to also prepare ministers so they have certain kind of core skills. So I, don't, I wouldn't rule them out, and there's definitely, there are key moments. I don't know, tomorrow you can think of one. I, I can definitely think of one with the, a senior minister. It was, actually, it was Nick Clegg, I'd say. It was... Um, years ago, um, and there was a disagreement between Department of Health and um, DWP. Actually, it was on mental health training in relation to whatever. And he quoted his argument that actually there was no evidence to decide between the two whether you should do it or more. And there was this point where Nick leans across the table, he was kind of brokering this, and he just said, but Wait a minute, wouldn't, couldn't, so you, neither of you really know if it would work or not. So couldn't we do this and run it as what do you call them, one of those uh, randomized control <laughs> trial things? It was like, Oh my God, like Deputy Prime Minister just said the words randomized control trial to some departments. I kind of died and went to heaven type thing moment. But it was really powerful because when ministers do demand it, and some do, of course, some of them don't. Some of them don't really want to know the answer to the question. But quite a lot do. Um, And one former minister said to me, I won't say who it was, but he said, don't you understand what a minister is? Ministers are risk takers. They don't know how long they've got. They want to get in there. They want to try some radical options. And of course, you know, most of them want to know, did it work and what worked before? So I think it's overstated by the civil service to often say ministers don't want it, which is why I feel like, also I think, and partly in handover territory, and we've been to bumpy periods, have we, and pretty recently, politically. My own view is that the civil service and public service should just do this. This is what you should just do. You should be trying to figure out what works and what doesn't. Do you really need anyone to tell you, like, you know, you're, you're about to spend a half a billion quid on something, could you figure out is it effective or not and could we adapt it to make it better? Do you really need a minister to say, please go and do that? So maybe it's easy for me to say that than tomorrow, but I feel quite strongly on it. Um, so I do think, yes, build it at the top level, but, I mean, I've been pretty clear. I think the policy profession is so key because otherwise what happens is that after the fact, some poor analyst like Stephen Aldridge is told, oh, could you tell us whether this thing worked or not? And it's basically not impossible. It's extraordinarily difficult if in the original policy design you didn't build it in a way that was designed to be evaluated and figure out what goes on. Not least because the most important thing often is not, did it work overall, but which version of it worked better? So in Tamara, in your example about Sure Start, in many ways more interesting than did it work overall is which version of Sure Start mm-hmm. is better and you want to keep adapting and improving it, right? It's the Amazon model. Finally, on accountability, yes, one of the puzzles has been, and you'll know this, mm-hmm. um, why Parliament didn't and doesn't push harder on it when they bring in ministers and everyone else, or even the NAO, fine, it picked up on the 8%, but NAO weren't the guys, you know, for any OFIX in the room, who generated the 8%, right? It was done by Cabinet Office and Treasury, but hopefully they will ask, is it getting better? Um, and one of the things I would lock in if I was advising the Chancellor and the new PM on this is that build it into the SR, absolutely, but also get a body like the OBR. The OBR has long, long lists. It's the closest thing to have a long list of every bit of expenditure. And literally on that grid say... Okay, does it have an evaluation or does it not? And when it's going to be delivered? 
So then you could track it and it would be external. And similarly for the ETF, one of the key canaries down the coal mine would be the slightly geeky but important detail, Tracy will know, the publication of protocols. Did, did you publish a protocol? In other words, you summarize at the beginning of this, this is how we will evaluate as a public document. And you know, it may take us years to get some of these evaluations in place, but you shouldn't have to wait years to see how many protocols are being produced by how many departments. And are there some departments that are producing no protocols whatsoever? In which case, we can be pretty sure they'll have no evidence in however many years' time. So I think you can reinforce it by instructing some external institutions at some point to make sure that we are, um, in fact, you know, doing what we said we would do. Thanks, David. Tomorrow. Yeah, so um, actually, I completely agree with you on the minister's place. I think, it's, um, I think we, could, we should be creating the appetite. I feel the same around use of data, um, is that you, know, you have to sort of show what's possible um, and just start to create the appetite uh, for that kind of information and present it in the right way. So I think it's uh, I think it's for us to do. I mean, you know, obviously we should bring it into any of the stuff that the IFG do with you know potential ministers, etc., um, and all that, and, and and use that as much as possible. But I think we have responsibility to create that appetite. Um, uh, 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 so I think that's a bit in our hands. Um, I get the point on. Um, there's the prioritizing resources. There's a really interesting question here of, you know, you ask, you, you're all um, trying to um, uh, provide advice on a particular policy and, the, and, the, and it's not there, the kind of uh, the information you'd like to have on, on previous attempts and uh, an evaluation. Now, um, Chris Whitty, before he was Chris Whitty off the telly, <laughs> um, when he was the Chief Scientific Advisor at the Department of Health, um, and he'd say, if you come to him and go, we've got this thing, we've got to put up a submission in two days, where's the evidence? He'd go, I'll give you as much as I can give you, but in exchange, you have to agree to have a workshop in which we'll think, what are the things you're going to need to know in six months' time, in two years' time, in three years' time? And then we can kind of work on that. Um, and uh, so I, I, I think that's a really important thing of how do you ensure that you've kind of got the, got the things you need in time, you need to all the time be doing uh, looking ahead on that. It is look, it's challenging to do things with the um, with uh, you know with limited resources. I assume that was probably getting at kind of limited analytical resource sometimes and so on. Um, I think because of our we're not as good at working effectively across professions. We don't make as efficient and effective use of the different uh, of our scientists and our. Uh, and our analysts and so on in policy making, we need to find better and more effective ways in which we uh, in which we work together. So I think that's key. And on um, accountability, so I think so. The, the NAO and the PAC are a very powerful um, uh, form of accountability. So I think the more that they can pick up on this, and I think we should have more conversations with them about the most effective way, and, you know, careful what you wish for, but, you know, <laughs> uh, um, of, of them um, in this agenda. I think that's, uh, that's really important. I mean, the importance of the task force and CAT's role that you described, that is a really important way in which you kind of hold people to account. We kind of, you know, if someone's checking up and going, have you have you produced your areas of research interest and that sort of thing. We should, we just, sometimes it's not so much about a new mechanism, yeah. but let's use the ones we've got as effectively as possible first. Yeah. And sometimes explain that they're happening. Um, yeah. that, to give Have transparent confidence. about them. Yeah. Um, brilliant, thank you. Let's go to the room now, and I'll take three at a time, because I'm conscious there'll probably be lots of questions and not much time. So let's go to the uh, lady there. So there's a microphone coming around, sorry. So, uh, yeah. Thanks. Um, thanks, David. First of all, I just want to say, 
being outside of government and actually this kind of whole world working with the public, a thank you from that side as well, because you've kept us thinking really sharply over the last 10 years um, and, and forced us to be honest about where we're making progress and where we're not. So thank you hugely for that. Um, you who you are? Tracy Brown, Sense About Science, sorry. Um, I just wanted to draw attention to the whole asking questions thing, which was kind of missing, I thought, from your 10 uh, when we, at your suggestion actually, together with the Institute for Government, looked at the transparency of the evidence behind policy making and whether an ordinary motivated member of the public can find their way, we, well, Jill Rutter and I noticed something that we didn't have the numbers there to back up, but we did make an observation. The clearer people were, the more there was evaluation, the more clearly defined the policy problem was in the first place. Now, I don't know which gives rise to which, uh, but what we've also observed through the pandemic is a real inability to ask good questions, um, and particularly the modelers found this. Um, you know, they weren't asked how to optimise certain outcomes and so on. And, and so I think... Perhaps, you know, we sort of talk about evaluation almost like a punitive bit where we say, did, was that worth spending the money? But in the first place, did, pe- did people actually ask the question properly? Does the public know what the policy is trying to fix? Um, I think that's something that I would put in that top ten. Thank you. We'll take another couple. Uh, who wants to come in? Another question? Gentleman there. Thank you very much. Um, Luke Ridley, DEFRA. So I'm one of your scientists. Hi. Um, I think one of the problems that we have um, in environmental work is that a lot of evaluations are done on the ground by local groups and they're done without very much of a kind of common language. They're done perhaps, you know, an evaluation will be put away somewhere and not find its way onto the right desk at the right time. And to me, it feels like that kind of common framework across evaluations is really missing thoughts on how we could build some of that would be great thank you very much and one other if there is one or we can go straight on no well let's take those two while people um uh, while people cogitate uh so uh asking the right questions and using them to define the policy problem and finding a common language to sort of promote uh, evaluation uh, tomorrow do you want to go first and then I'll stay yes i mean I, the, the the point about having the right uh policy question and you're talking about like how do you and communicate being transparent about it I think we don't do that often enough within within government and part of that take your policy problem define I should have said define a really good question and then work work out what's the kind of team and people and resource you need to answer it I think that's what we don't teach enough um, and one of the things frustrates me is that sometimes we get in um, management consultants and they do it really quickly because part of their thing of defining the question and what you're going to use to answer it is uh, is them giving you a kind of quote um, uh, and we need to t- we need to learn how to do that effectively um, so uh, I think it's a really good point that's it's a really interesting point about the um, the variety of then ways in which people um, then do their evaluation how do we do a, a common framework so I'd love to explore that more but one of the things I'm thinking about is that we've got a project of sort of looking at how do we do um, a kind of uh, as you know kind of um, a, 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 a what NCA stands for one of our programs but it's effectively of how do we kind of get a kind of measure um, of the state of our environment and our natural capital as a kind of baseline and I'm wondering if as part of that we might be able to to do something that helps in that space. So I'd love to explore that more. Yeah, so quickly, um, Tracy, I'm sorry if I didn't shout out adequately. Um, I should have done, because the work you did, uh, in fact, with IFG, um, 
to, to map those who don't know it's a brilliant thing to go through you know white papers green papers speeches whatever and say is there any evidence in this and also try and work out what was the how would you assess that um i mean whitehall dance of course they're fantastic poem sex like you know tomorrow but um they're generally quite interested in reference points and it was quite awkward to find that you're at the bottom of a league table even if it wasn't fully constructed that way where you keep producing white papers that appear to have no evidence in them whatsoever um, I did think of that, sorry, as the number one issue, which was map the gaps. And, and of course, what you were doing is in a systematic way. It's just like, what's the level of kind of ignorance that sits behind it or optimism, whatever you want to call it. Um, there's an interesting behavioral effect you may also know, which is um, these overconfidence effects that people greatly overestimate how likely they are that the thing they you know, think is right, either for a, you know, an answer to a quiz or whether it's going to be a good idea to invade this country or whatever it will be. And those overconfidence effects get more severe the more senior you are. In fact, you might remember we did a session, I think you were at it, with Perm Sex on prediction, how well could you get people better calibrated. So I think it's a really important bit of work, and you should keep doing that, right? And I know some Whitehall departments are uncomfortable, but you should do it again. (laughs) So um, on the other point about language, um, okay, it's tomorrow knows. Um, DEFRA has an incredibly rich history, not least because of Rothamsted, and people forget this. And you have literally contributed to the language which is now used around evidence. So when people today in social science talk about, you know, you really need to do a field study, why are they called field studies? They're called field studies because they were done in fields by DEFRA to work out if you treat it in this way or that way, does it grow faster? And indeed, a lot of, of course, stats um, from Fisher and so on, Bayesian, and what, was, was again built from literally fieldwork, <laughs> you know, um, so we do think in metaphors, but we also think in quite practical terms. And, and one of the things I feel reasonably optimistic about is that as it gets adopted in that everyday way, be it literary in fields or elsewhere, and particularly we talk a lot about the you know the kind of policy profession, etc. But a lot of the action is out there. It's in the six million public servants who do stuff day in day out. You know, and you've got some kid who's kicking in a shop front. What's the right or wrong thing to say to them? There's quite a long list of wrong things to say, it turns out. What was the right thing to say? Or, again, I'll give you a real example, because to me, that's where it comes to life. Again, another crime one, actually, um, done by the guys at Evidence-Based Policing. Beautiful recent intervention um, where people suffer from domestic violence, um, and then rather than sending an officer around, hey, why don't you use a Zoom call? Might seem not, but actually, it means you respond much, much faster. What do you get? You get much higher satisfaction rates. You get higher conviction rates as well and lower cost. And by the way, the forensic guys are delighted because they haven't got someone stomping all over the evidence. It's just, but it's done as a randomised control trial, literally by Stacey Rothwell down in Kent. Beautiful construction done by a copper on the beat. Like, mm. it, it doesn't all have to be elite level, right? It can be actually out there just trying out what are all those questions, sort of quite practical ones, and how do we, in many ways our question is, how do we create stewardship to support the army of possible kind of experimenters out there to figure out better ways forward and then create a loop so we can learn. Mm. I agree on the DEFRA point. I'm not just saying this because tomorrow's here, but I went, certainly when I went from a sort of, to be kind, an evidence-free uh, or evidence-light environment in the Cabinet Office to, um, uh, to DEFRA working on animal and plant health and uh, animal welfare, and suddenly all this evidence. Amazing. I'm going to take a, a couple from, the, um, uh, from, uh, from Slido, and then I can see Penny's got another question in the, in the room. But one, a quick one directly to you, David. The... Um, uh, what works centres of themselves interventions? Where do we find evidence that what works works? Uh, I.e., any evidence that policing policy and practices has changed for the better as a result of the creation of a policing what works centre? Yeah, it really bugs me that question. And the short answer is we do not have a good enough answer to it, I think is the truth. I mean, a hypothesis would be 
you know, how would you test it? It's not an easy thing to do. It's, um, and what's your counterfactual in this case? If you didn't have any EF, I mean, in principle, you know, or in policing, you'd have some places that were not treated by it. You can at least do some variation of it. And one thing is, like, for example, you can try and crank up the amount of evidence which a school or an officer gets exposed to and see, does it change what they do? And the great claim in the end, but you wouldn't be able to sit, you know, if you take schools, is that are we going to move up the PISA rankings? Are you going to see a differential improvement performance in the UK because it's using evidence? But in principle, you could nest it. It is quite hard to do, though. So I'm prepared to take a second best in some areas, be Bayesian, and just say, well, if you're doing no, if you're not gathering any evidence <laughs> and you're not using any evidence, we can probably say that's not a great show, right? We're definitely stumbling in the dark. So that at least is testable. But open to ideas and a good puzzle for the ETF. Yeah. Keep, them, keep the ideas coming in. Tomorrow, I was going to say this is a quick one, but it's a sort of huge question. But, um, uh, but a quick answer, maybe. What can be done to reduce barriers to access to government-held data in support of evaluation, particularly across departments? So data and use of data, making it more um, transparent and easy to access across yeah. departments. Well, this is where it's good that, um, that Ian Diamond is, uh, uh, is engaged in, uh, um, and in, in supporting the um, evaluation Valuation Task Force work because he is very much looking at this mm. and uh, making progress on how we on how we remove some of those uh, barriers. But I'll admit it's been an, um, it's been a frustration um, for a lot of people for a long time. But he does seem to be making some progress on that. So I think Ian's your man and he's doing stuff. There we go. We'll keep on his um, case. And it's, and it's a priority. Thank you. Question in the room here. McLaren from North Highland. Um, I think we can continue the praise of DEFRA in terms of the data work that's been done there. How can the civil service more widely um, attract the data talent that's really needed to do these kind of evaluations, especially in the departments where that isn't really the case today? Brilliant. Thank you. Uh, I'll combine that with one final question from Slido and then we'll um, wrap up, which is just the sort of political context. I mean, there's a question here about um, uh, how important is evidence-based policymaking in an era of ideology and political posturing? Um, talk about Diffid and, and, and ODA. I, we don't need to go into the political posturing, but uh, combining uh, evidence and use of evidence with, um, with politics and ideology. Uh, tomorrow, do you want to just pick up the data question first and then maybe I'll look to David for the latter? Um, so look, there's a there's a big competition out there for for, for talent, um, and one of the one of the really important things that people, you know, looking at do they want to come into government at all is whether they can make a difference because that is one of our attractions as a civil services. You get people in who feel actually I could make a difference, um, and so that makes it even more important that it is making a difference and that it's visible and clear. So that's going to be uh, that that's probably the, the clearest um, amount. We had a, um, a, comp- a sort of data competition, uh, which I'm particularly pleased about because um, civil service-wide, because uh, DEFRA uh, won, that's probably partly why, but um, yeah, it was a bunch of people who were doing some amazing stuff that allowed us to identify where you need to do things in peatland to stop um, uh, carbon emissions uh, that was using incredibly cutting-line stuff. And it was amazing to meet the people who were involved and that it was that ability to, do, to change something really huge. So that it was really important to go, OK, so here is some money and you can try this stuff out. Uh, and how do we use competitions and pots of money that allow people to try stuff out so that you can really make good on that? I think that's probably the key bit. Thank you, David. Anything on that or the... Um, Why don't I jump to the other one? Um, 
And it's a good closing point, really. So I, I skipped over, and it goes to Tracy's point earlier, of that map. And what, I didn't explain really why I put it up, and I sometimes use it, which is it's one of those things, because from the original beginning, you might say, of the Enlightenment, is that Europeans started producing maps, it does go to your point about politics, which had gaps on them. They started, which was a weird and unusual cultural thing to do, because most countries and places, you produce a map of where you are, like the Chinese and so on, and, and then you kind of, you have a few dragons and the corners, and the paper is full up. So something weird did happen, in fact, literally, in the literature known as weird, with the Europeans, where they became more open-minded to what do you not know the answer to? And there might be lots of other reasons they had to it. But it's quite a big mental shift to do that. And it has a political narrative to it, I think, which is quite a deep one, hence unfinished enlightenment, which is it's quite a big deal to get up and say, not least the politician, I don't know the answer. I actually don't know, and we're going to find out. That's sort of implicit behind these evidence schools, but how often do you hear ministers and others saying, I don't know what the answer is, but it's a really good question, let's try and figure it out. And I just make it an even bigger point, I think, that sits over it. For those of you, I find myself revisiting it recently, but around a lot of literature about why nations fail or how they get ahead or behind. And one of the old results is just from Kremer and others, is that it's just literally the number of people who are connected is one of the variables. So in Europe, you just have a lot of people connected. You know, once in a, one, in, one in a million people have an interesting idea. If they're joined up, it spreads. And hence, you get these incredible differences when Europeans turn up in Latin America and they've got rifles against, you know... Mm-hmm steel or bronze, or even more if they turn up in some other bit of the world like Australasia and you're against Stone Age axes. And it's basically driven by, you know, there's a kind of rate of production of ideas and how fast does it spread? And you want to join it up to increase. But of course, now we have lots of machinery to try and drive that. But fundamentally, you, you want... Um, one of the advantages that democracies have got is they've got the capacity to have some version of what Pippa Norris calls uh, sceptical trust, right? They can have a degree of openness and they can say, actually... We, we're open politically but also intellectually with respect to what other ideas are there. It's the, the elite doesn't close down new ideas and developments, even if they'll be annoying and embarrassing, right? That's really important, but it does need a political narrative to fit into, which is an uncomfortable one, because you're perpetually, potentially challenged. But that's the genius, right, of a liberal democracy when it works well, which is why I feel it's so profound. You can start this quite a technical issue about, you know, can you do a randomised controlled trial? There's a much bigger set of ideas about it, which is, are you big enough politically, culturally, as a nation to say, we don't know what works in lots of places, but we're going to live in a way which is pursuing like, what does work, including it's going to be quite annoying and embarrassing. It's going to keep showing us that things we already did or, or were precious about and that we ourselves did were, in fact, not the most effective thing to do. And if we can do that, that's a very big deal, very big deal for Britain, for our citizens, and frankly, for the world. So we shouldn't give up on it. Brilliant. Perfect note to end on, David, as you said, taking us uh, sort of into the big picture. So thank you both very much. We'll say thank you properly in a minute because uh, otherwise I'll get in trouble with the, uh, uh, on the cameras. And we will, I should say, we'll have a, a video and a sound recording uh, of this on our website in the next um, 24 hours. Um, a plug for upcoming uh, IFG events. Uh, there's one coming up next week on public appointments, 2nd of November, with um, Lord Evans of the Committee on Standards in Public Life, Baroness Finn, Simon Finn, who was Boris Johnson's Deputy Chief of Staff, Bernard Jenkin, William Shawcross, Commissioner for Public Appointments, and uh, Sue Gray, who needs no introduction after the last couple of years. Do keep an eye on our website for all our commentary on a new Prime Minister, as it turns out, uh, government formation, uh, uh, seeing the Cabinet uh, come together, and whatever the next few weeks brings. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you again to David for passing on the baton and Tamara for receiving it. Uh, Really pleased to have you here.